Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, you're listening to a very special bonus episode of Heirs of Enslavement. If you've listened to the rest of the series, you'll know that we've been speaking to people around the Caribbean about reparatory justice and how we deal with the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade. But there's one person we've been trying especially hard to pin down for a longer interview, and that's the Grenadian Prime Minister, Dickon Mitchell. We talked about everything from reparatory justice through to Grenada's relationship with Britain today. So, Prime Minister Dickon Mitchell, it's a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you about the issue of reparatory justice. Let me start by asking you, how much is reparatory justice an electoral issue for you personally as Prime Minister? Are your voters thinking about it when they go to the ballot box, for example? So I, I would say I don't think our voters are thinking about it when they go to the ballot box. So it's not an electoral issue, uh, but I think it's a, it's a national issue. It's a regional issue. Um, and in a sense, it's, it's a race issue as well. Yeah. Its profile has definitely been upped in the last few months, years, if you want. Do you think that's had an impact on people beginning to talk about this? There's been a lot of forgetting we've been here with it. So I think people are people kind of more engaged with this, do you think? Certainly, now more than ever. In the case of CARICOM, you know, we've had the CARICOM Commission, which has led on this issue for the last decade. It's been a long, slow, difficult uh, challenge, but I think certainly in the last, I would say, 36 months, it has really come to the fore, notwithstanding the challenges posed by, by COVID and perhaps in some instances because of some of the issues that occurred, for example, in the United States, which persons were able to see, like the uh, Floyd issue. Um, I think it, it resonated with people how much you have legacy issues that stem directly from slavery, from colonialism, from, in a sense, the domestic apartheid in many instances. And I think it resonated with people that we still have a lot of those issues that impact how we behave today. And there have been, I think, movement locally, regionally and internationally in persons no longer hiding or being afraid to speak about the issue and uh, persons coming to terms with the fact that at a minimum, we need to have a conversation about it. So what are your personal views on the issue of reparations? Are you a convert or is it something you've believed in for some time? Well, it's something I've always believed in. I think even from the time I was a teenager, I'm a student of history, it's probably my favorite subject. And I've always felt that the way in which the Caribbean, not just the English-speaking Caribbean, but I think all of the Caribbean islands, the way in which the history of the Caribbean uh, has been told, the way in which the history of the Caribbean has been presented, and the way in which, to some extent, the Caribbean has not been developed, uh, is directly linked to the plantation economy and to uh, a slavery-based economy. So it was clear to me that there's a direct link between the development of the colonizers 
uh, and the underdevelopment of the, the places they colonized. Uh, there are very few examples where the places that were colonized uh, developed equally with the places that, that were being colonized. And in instances where it has happened, there's a clear relationship between white majority in the colonized states and their development. So, I mean, the US is one obvious example, and then you can take Australia and New Zealand as other examples. But if you take the other colonies, if you take Africa as a continent, if you take India, uh, if you take the Caribbean, it is quite clear that in places where the indigenous or populations that were brought there that were not majority white, uh, that they were deliberately underdeveloped. The economy was based on a plantation system that for the most part was exploitative of the natural resources in the country and exploitative of the persons who are either indigenous to the countries or who were transplanted and, and brought there and who were not white. So for me, it was something that always needed to be addressed. And I think anyone who just understands the history would understand that. And it doesn't have to come from a place of anger or, or bitterness. You know, there are things about history that you have to accept. I speak English. <laughs> you know, if someone speaks Spanish in, in, in the Caribbean or French, it's because that language came from, from that the country that colonized you. In Grenada, we have a parliamentary democracy. That's the British system, we have it. Um, and there are certainly things that you, I would accept historically and objectively today that are good about British culture. I, I love democracy. I like the fact that Grenada is a multi-plural society. Uh, we have religious tolerance. You know, to a large extent, we've made significant strides in terms of ensuring that women are treated the same as men, et cetera, et cetera. So it, that doesn't take away though, from the bad things. And I think it's important for us to understand that if we are going to correct and address some of the, the bad things or some of the legacy issues from that, that we have to talk about why those issues arise and what role slavery or racism, colonization played, played in it. So you mentioned legacies then, and you know, we're sat here looking out at the city of London, um, which in many ways made its wealth from the transatlantic slave trade, from colonization. But it's still happening today. I, I, I heard from Arlie Gill, the chair of the Grenadian Reparations Committee, that 60 cents of every East Caribbean dollar goes in debt repayments. It, it's not something that was just history. It's something that still has an effect today, doesn't it? Yeah, and that, that comes to a large extent from the, the way in which the economic relationship was engineered. Uh, the economies of the, the Caribbean was essentially designed to serve uh, the economies of Europe, the UK. And the challenge you face with that is that once independence occurred, trying to rebalance that relationship left you with a situation where you had to borrow uh, for everything. So you essentially have to borrow for all of your physical infrastructure development, uh, for your education needs, for your healthcare needs. And that lending essentially came right back from the UK or, or Europe or North America, as the case may be. Um, and in many instances, the terms upon which you uh, lend the, the loans are not favorable to ever engaging in a pattern where you could actually repay them. Add to that the challenges we face with climate change, for example, over the last decades or so. And when hurricanes come or some other natural event, you then have to borrow to rebuild economies. And in some instances, like Grenada in 2004 or Dominica in 2015, uh, you're talking about natural disasters that wipes out your entire GDP more than 100% of your GDP, and you have to start right away. Uh, and you borrow again to do so. And so it's a perpetual debt trap cycle. Um, and oftentimes, the multilateral institutions, the IMF, for example, in the 1980s and 90s, insisted on policies that destroyed economies. 
um, rather than help because you basically had to create high levels of unemployment slash your public service, you know, send people home, uh, reduce the salaries people are paid with if you wanted to get any sort of assistance from, from the IMF. So that is part of the, the challenge we still face today. I'm listening to you and you sound really calm about this. And I, we've just gone through Brexit where we one of the reasons we left the European Union was we didn't think we were getting a good economic deal. Yes. And it caused a lot of anger. Um, other reasons as well, but that was one. And and yet, given the history, given the exploitation, given the hundreds of years of that, given the climate crisis driven by an industrial revolution, which you haven't really benefited from in many ways, you don't sound aggrieved or angry <laughs> as I would hear Brexiteers or others. And I'm just wondering, why, why is that? People listening to this would ask that. Why, why are you not angrier? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, this has been... Uh, in a sense, a long period, and there's no question that it's painful. But I, I think I've learned that, you know, because this is a relationship issue, if you, if you just simply espouse anger and bitterness and so on, it's not going to move the relationship any further. So to some extent, what, there, there are a couple of things that I think we are trying to achieve from a reparatory justice perspective. First of all, it's the moral question. I think morally, Europeans, persons in the United Kingdom, and I'm going to use this word deliberately, white people, particularly in the Western world, need to come to grips with the history of the Western world and the history of slavery, the history of colonization, and accept that it's happened. There, there are a lot of people who pretend that it didn't happen who prefer not to talk about it. And if you're not prepared to talk about it or you're pretending that it happens, it sends a dangerous message to me, which is it is likely to be repeated. So I'm calm about it because I want persons to understand that it's not just about racism from a white-black perspective but from a humanity perspective, because there are other races that may become powerful, uh, that may, through technology or through simply the sheer size or military might or so on, they may not be white, they may be Chinese, they may be African. The question is, do you want to send the message that because we did it 200 years ago and it was okay, that they can repeat it 200 years now simply because they've advanced in technology. But the second lesson is really the economic one. And, you know, I, I'll use China as an example. Western media, certainly in the, the 80s and 70s, uh, from where we lived in the Caribbean, portrayed China as essentially a place that simply copied everybody else's ideas and inventions and so on. Um, now, 50 years later, it has certainly had significant advances in all kinds of endeavors, but it's still portrayed very negatively. But as far as I'm aware, China has not had any war with any country in the last 50 years. It has not invaded any country. It has not engaged in any of the things that in a sense the West engaged in when the West rose to prominence. It is not taking people's land, it is not conquering or any of that kind of stuff. My question would be in circumstances like this, you still portray this country as negative rather than saying, all right, it may have its downside, but it has taken hundreds of millions of its people out of poverty. Is that not something to be applauded? And is it not more likely that if people are coming out of poverty, uh, that that country should be viewed positively, we should learn the lessons? The question would be, why is that? Why would you not be open and, and praise a country like that. And instead, you create a situation where even small countries like Iran are almost forced to decide, are you supporting China or are you supporting the West? It has nothing to do with you, right? And oftentimes you, are, you have to make decisions which actually compromise your own ability to simply develop your own people. So for example, if you wanted to get aid from China, you're worried about how the Americans will perceive it, so sometimes you just don't take it, right? And that's the challenge, I think, of the way in which the West has imposed its own sense of morality or its own political systems on the rest of the world. I love democracy, I believe in democracy, but who am I to say that democracy is superior to the Chinese system? 
I'm, I'm in no position to say so. So I raise this to say that to, to some extent, part of the challenge we have is the fact that there, there seems to be an underlying tone within Western developed worlds that the education system, the healthcare system, the finance system, the economic system, the political system is superior to every, everyone else. And, and our unwillingness to accept that it's different strokes of different folks, that there are some countries where democracy probably just has never been a thing. It's never been part of the history, it's never been part of their culture. And if they choose a different political system that works for them, that's their business. You know, so, so for me, part of this, this issue of reparatory justice is also getting the West to understand that you should not isolate or demean or lessen a country simply because it has a different socioeconomic construct or because the people look differently or sound differently to, to people in the West. And I think for us in the Caribbean, in a sense, we're uniquely placed because we have different religions, different races. And the lesson for us is that, you know, if we can talk through differences and treat with instances where um, we've done wrong to people, we should accept openly that there's a need to compensate or to help. In that sense, I'm not exposing anger. I'm not exposing, go, you know, that we need uh, billions and billions of dollars. And that's the only way in which we will feel justified in terms of what, what's happening. But I think first we have to accept it was wrong. Second, we have to accept what are the clear linkages that still disadvantages us as a result of that. And what are the policies that you are still pursuing that is harmful uh, to our own development. And I think one of the things that is important to me is that oftentimes the UK, the European Union, North America pursues economic policies that destroys the economies of these regions, which leads to the very thing that they don't want, illegal immigration, uh, security concerns, uh, political and social instability. I'll give examples. You, you, you have in the Caribbean a history of things like the banana industry being destroyed because of the, the liberalization and they need to get Chiquita bananas into the UK over Caribbean bananas. The financial systems in the, in, the, in the Caribbean are targeted relentlessly. The Caribbean has been painted as tax havens, as uh, countries where money laundering and anti-terrorist financing takes place, giving suggestions that there are no regulations in place to regulate the financial system, all of which are patently false. And they know that. And you have instances where their banks exploit us. So you have, particularly for example, Canadian banks, Whenever it's profitable, they come to the Caribbean, they extract wealth. Uh, the minute time the economies become difficult, they leave en masse. You have blacklisting of Caribbean countries from the Bahamas come down for all kinds of nebulous reasons. So it, you run the risk of losing your corresponding banking. And if you can't have corresponding banking, then the people in your country can't trade. It's extremely difficult to open a bank account in Grenada and the Caribbean, extremely difficult. Why is that? It's because of unilateral policies, guidelines, regulations, dreamt up literally by people at the OECD that they impose. And so the question is that relationship, that unequal relationship, oftentimes is rooted back into the fact that it was always an unequal relationship. It was always seen as one that was exploitative rather than one that was meant to be mutually beneficial. And I think that's where the whole question of the reparatory justice in, I guess, 2023 stands from, from where I sit. Some listeners hearing this for the first time might think, well, this sounds like an abusive relationship. Like, why don't you get out of it? And in the sense that I guess Barbados has left the Commonwealth. Um, it's still tied to Britain in many other ways, but it has left. Is there a potential consequence that if 
Britain and other European countries, but Britain in particular, doesn't listen to what you're saying, that there, there could be consequences? I think there are always consequences. I would say, for example, if one speaks about the influence of China in the region, why is that? Uh, there may be many reasons, but I think one of the reasons is because to a large extent, Europe, the UK, North America have completely ignored the Caribbean over the last 20 years. I'm sure the technical people will come and give charts that says things like, you know, well, the US still invests in the Caribbean or private investors still invest and so on. But the truth is you can actually say to them, in the, for example, in the case of Ukraine, actually prove that. You know, yes, you know, cooperation on things like security and, and so on. But I can give basic examples. Um, the Chinese government offers scholarships to, to Grenadian students. The American government doesn't. I mean, in simple basic stuff that deals with human development, ignoring governments, and it's simple things like that that makes a difference for a small country, which obviously wants to enhance its human capacity. So I just give, give examples like that. You, we have visa-free travel between Grenada and, and, and China. You, know, you can go to China with a, if you're a Grenadian without a visa. America is four hours away. Every Grenadian needs to go to Barbados, get biometrics done, incur a lot of money, airplane, hotel, taxi, just to get a visa. And oftentimes, what are you going to do? Simply visit a Grenadian who lives and works and helps to build the US for a two-week vacation, right? So when you pursue policies like that, and these policies have been in existence for a long time, it, it creates a situation where even if you wanted to, it's difficult to, to, to not have friends or, or seek alternative friends or diversify your governmental relations simply because you're a small island. Uh, and you can't, as we say, put all your eggs in one basket. So the, the reality is, if you look at a lot of the actions, they come through multilateral institutions oftentimes, whether it's IMF, World Bank, etc. You have very little control over these, these policies. There's nothing to negotiate. It's essentially you take it or, or, or you, you leave it. And I think that's really the, the, the challenge in terms of um, consequences. Um, and then, in a sense, people panic and they worry about their security interests or the geopolitical interests and so on. So I think, in a sense, unwittingly, given our history, one may argue, for better or for worse, given the close nature of the history, that we're family. But if you don't look after your family members, if you pay them no mind, then they're going to seek a familial relationship elsewhere. And I think that, from a geopolitical perspective, is the consequence. But I also think, you know, it's a mistake, I think, on their part. Naturally, our ties are closer. The history, the culture, the language, the values. And so I actually think it's in the UK's interest, it's in America's interest, it's in Europe's interest to invest in the Caribbean. No matter how big you are, you need allies, you need friends, you need partners. And I think it's better to partner with people who share similar values like you, who share history or common history. Um, and when you look at, for example, diaspora in the UK or diaspora in North America, it's massive. It's huge. And they've made significant contributions towards the building of these countries as well. And that has to be acknowledged. So we've been to Guave to speak to my dad, who was a member of the Windrush generation, but has now returned back to Grenada. And he's talked to me about the lack of opportunity on the island, particularly for young people. So where does ultimate responsibility lie for solving that problem? Uh, and is that part of the conversation you're having about reparations? Primarily, the, the responsibility lies with the nation of Grenada. There's no doubt about that. It's our people and it's our responsibility to make sure uh, that we can create an education system and, a, and, a, and an economic system that gives people hope and gives them opportunity. Uh, having said that, the difficulty we face is partly because of our history. And how do you, in, in 50 years of independence, in a sense, turn 
your economic system around to serve your people and your education system to serve your people. And so it definitely requires leadership that is bold, that is imaginative, but it also requires leadership that understands the historical challenges and the structural challenges that our economy um, and our education system was left with. So if you don't understand that, you will never be able to solve this problem. Because the truth is we will not grow the economy of Grenada significantly by doing the traditional things that we were left to do. The traditional things was essentially agriculture that we exported, right? The education system, in a sense, catered for the exceptional kid rather than the normal kid. Uh, so those who were bright enough and were able to, to leave the island either through their sheer brilliance or because their parents um, were fortunate enough to migrate and could go to the UK and study law or medicine or engineering or a handful. But at the end of the day, a handful of people are not going to transform the structural challenges the country faces or transform the, the economy. So we, we first have to recognize that, right? That that has been the sort of projection that the society was left with, that it was better to try and go to the UK or go to North America rather than to stay home to try and work and build your own country. And that's still deep-rooted. And so the education system, to a large extent, is still get towards you doing high school or A-levels or associate degrees and then migrating to study. And if you migrate to study, I mean, let's be real, what's the chance of you returning to a small island? Very slim. But even if that was happening, then what, what does the education system say about the rest of the, the population? And that's the big challenge. So we have to revamp our education system. And there's an opportunity to do so because with technology, it really does allow us to leapfrog some of the stages. But then you have to have the revenue that would allow you to invest in the technology. You have to be able to get the, the transfer of the technology. And we would certainly need help in doing so. And I think that's where, in a sense, the help of our partners can come in. And so when we talk about things like reparatory justice, it's not a question of just simply saying, hand me a, a pile of cash. It is saying, how can we partner so that the whole question about hope and opportunity for the young men on the island is addressed in light of the historical legacies of the education system that you kind of didn't leave us with, the healthcare system that you didn't leave us with, and an economy that, as you said, we did not benefit from the Industrial Revolution in any way, shape, or form. There's virtually no manufacturing. You know, the energy system that was developed, oil and gas, I mean, if you don't have it, then the cost of electricity is generally um, too expensive to have any kind of manufacturing. So now that we are having the revolution in, 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 in renewable energy, for example, that is where the reparatory justice comes in. That is where there's an opportunity for, I think the term used in the UK is leveling up, an opportunity for leveling up so that we can then say, okay, how can we help countries like Greener transition quickly? It's telling that Lord Trevelyan's family donated their small contribution to reparatory justice to an educational fund. Yes. And I'm wondering just how much of an impact the Trevelyan family have had on the conversation of reparations and the other families who are now stepped up, the, the Rentons, the Gladstones and others. Has this made a, a tangible difference to the issue of reparations, do you think? Well, certainly it's raised the profile a lot. And there's no question about that. I think it's certainly getting a lot more international media attention and that it, it would have had she not done so. And I will also accept it's courageous to do because, I mean, you know, the easy thing to do is to say, look, I didn't do anything wrong, right? It was my ancestors, I accept that. But I think what, what was clear to, to her, I think, is that when she researched, I think she can trace, in a sense, the privilege or the affluence, if you want to put it, that her family benefits from today that is directly linked to the wealth that was generated from the plantations and, and, and the slave plantations. And I think that's where many persons are in denial. 
they assume uh, that the, the original basis for their family's wealth came from some genuine, hard, legitimate ex enterprise rather than the, the, the trading in human beings. And I think when you recognize that, if that doesn't make your conscience, in a sense, stand up and say, but wait a minute, something isn't quite right here. So I actually thought it was quite courageous of her, and I think it has obviously encouraged others who perhaps might have been ambivalent or unsure. I've noticed in the Caribbean the response to the Trevelyan family and others seems to be more positive. There's kind of sometimes more negativity amongst the diaspora community here in the UK, possibly because of their own experiences here. Is that something you've, you've observed, you're aware of? I'm, I'm not aware of it, but I'm aware that some people felt, you know, the, the apology wasn't enough, that the, the sum of money was too small. And I could understand why they may, they may share that view. But I think for me, um, I'm not under any illusion that this is a complex issue. I understand why members of the diaspora or uh, citizens of the Caribbean may feel it's too little and it's not enough. But, you know, slavery wasn't abolished overnight. It was a long, hard fight. Colonialism wasn't dismantled overnight. It was a long, hard fight. Independence, whether in the Caribbean or any country that becomes independent, oftentimes it happens after a long period of, of struggle. And so I think similarly like this issue, it, it, it's been 10 years that we've, in a sense, had a very formal approach to it. It may take another 400 years. So you're the PM of Grenada, and I'm a part Grenadian MP here in the UK. What advice would you give me, politician to politician, in terms of the reparations campaign here in the UK? Well, first I'd say you, you would probably have to speak dispassionately, because I think if, if people become too emotive, then the likelihood you'd be able to make headway in the conversation probably becomes more difficult and people, you know, stiffen their backs and draw red lines that they don't think they, they can cross. So I think it's important for the conversation to be dispassionate um, and to be reasoned uh, and to be tolerant because it's a sensitive issue. Um, we need to make sure that people understand we are not trying to get back at anybody. We are not trying to make anyone feel bad, especially if you didn't actually do anything. But what we are trying to do is, is make sure that we understand the history of the UK uh, honestly, understand the history of the Caribbean honestly and understand the, the imbalance that has been that history and ask ourselves, first of all, does that imbalance deserve to be addressed uh, and are there ways to address it going forward that brings both parties closer together? I certainly am not trying to say that uh, our relationship with the UK should be strengthened or enhanced. I think for the UK's sake, no more than ever, actually, given the exit from the, the European Union that I certainly think it has to relook its own traditional relations, the Commonwealth and the role of the Commonwealth, for example. That's one. The second one is persistence. Uh, there's no question that this issue is going to require consistent persistence, perhaps almost unrelenting, um, if we are going to get the breakthroughs that we want to get through. And then the third one is to, to really make sure that people don't view this simply as us asking for some sort of a back pay or a large cash donation that someone we think will miraculously turn all, all the Caribbean around. That's not what this is about. It may involve cash, it may involve financial assistance, economic aid, but I think I gave a, a good example of how we can address some of the issues in the Caribbean if we are creative, if we are structured, and if we are looking to partner. That would leave the UK, I think, feeling good, first of all, uh, about its role in the world and about its role in the, in, the, in the Caribbean. And then second would, I think, help and benefit both the UK uh, economically and the Caribbean uh, economically. And I can give you a good example. You know, if we, if we look at our history, a lot of the nurses who 
worked in the NHS, came by the Windrush generation. They built the system. The NHS is struggling today. So is the health system in the Caribbean struggling today. And I think there's an opportunity for the UK, for example, to partner with the Caribbean to, in fact, educate hundreds, if not thousands of nurses again. That could mutually benefit both the Caribbean and the UK. So I just use this as a simple example of how looking at our history, understanding what worked in the past, and being objective and creative and sensible can help both our countries. But I sense here, it's very opposite that's happening. I sense there's more anti-migration sentiment than ever before, and it's foolish. And if you look at the history of, of, of the UK, it is always successful when it is receptive of migrants, when it is open, when it is tolerant. If it seeks to shut down on itself, it will fail. And I have no hesitation in saying that openly because I'm a student of history and I've seen it. So it's at the kind of MP level, but a lot of my constituents in Norwich are relatively poor. They'll struggle to heat their homes this winter. They are using food banks. Some of them will feel that, why should, why should I have to pay and contribute to reparatory justice? How would you answer that? Well, you know, I would answer that by saying, first of all, even within the UK, there's significant inequalities that needs to be addressed. And inequality within and outside of the UK is inequality still. And we have to make sure that persons who are in that position understand that oftentimes the inequalities that they face is also linked to the inequalities that we face in the Caribbean. So, you know, I talk about, for example, renewable energy and the investment in renewable energy. You know, so for persons who live in the UK, the question would be, are our policies really designed to ensure that even from within the UK perspective, we use the resources that the UK have, whether it's wind, solar, etc., to make sure that more of the citizens of the UK have sustained and affordable energy to, to keep them warm uh, during the winter. It's the same connection with, with Grenada, which is in light of our historical imbalance in that relationship, how can we partner to ensure that Grenada, just like the poor citizens, your constituency, uh, can find the technology and the investment in the technologies that would allow them to have sustainable and cheap energy that is, in a sense, God-given, whether it's the sun, the wind, rather than having to still import and use hydrocarbons from wherever we import them from. So there's, 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 in my view, no doubt a connection between poverty everywhere and inequality everywhere. And oftentimes, if we are united in that approach, we are able to then get the powerful people to make decisions that influence and raise all of our collective standard of, of living. So it is not purely a question of you know, taking their tax dollars. Sometimes it's just a question of having the right policy. So I think if we see that kind of synergy, then they, they would understand that it's actually a fight for them as well. Prime Minister, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. Heirs of Enslavement is a Persephonica production. It was presented by me, Laura Trevelyan, and Clive Lewis. Our producer is Rosie Stouffer. Our beautiful steel pan theme is by Andre Greenidge, with additional scored music from Senna Verdi. The sound design is by Aerophon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.